0: This is the APS China Quarterly, January 2021. China's Two-Horse Economy Will Canter On by Tan Yam and Chai Haoxiang Picture China's economy as a horse-drawn carriage pulled along a winding path by two horses. The road has been unusually perilous in 2020. The carriages of many major economies in the world have come to a complete halt, or even overturned. India's economy, for instance, is expected to contract 8.9% in 2020. The U.S. is expected to contract 3.5%. The euro area is expected to contract 7.2%. China's carriage, by contrast, is the only one still moving ahead. It is expected to grow 2% in 2020. In fact, one horse, let us call it the horse of domestic demand, is noticeably picking up the pace. It has picked up the slack from the second-prized horse, that of external demand, which is slightly hobbled by the coronavirus and a U.S.-initiated trade war. China has been reorienting its economy around domestic demand. The latest buzzword is, quote, dual circulation." a concept first articulated in May 2020 and expected to become a key priority in the upcoming 2021-2025 five-year plan. As the current slogan goes, the plan has, quote, domestic circulation as the core, yet with domestic and external circulation reinforcing each other. Placing domestic demand first means that China recognizes its external environment has changed, and there might be shrinking demand for its exports in the future. As Liu Ho describes in a People's Daily editorial in November 2020, the global economy has continued to be weak since the global financial crisis of 2008. The rise of populism and protectionism in the West has reversed the process of globalization, with the COVID-19 pandemic accelerating globalization's decline. China also needs to reduce its reliance on imported goods for national security reasons. Top leaders recognize the urgency of addressing China's Achilles' heel of tech dependence. They have been conveying the message in speeches made in September 2020 President Xi Jinping telling scientists of the urgency of accelerating scientific and technological innovation. Vice Premier Hong Hongzhong asking chipmakers and other high-tech firms in Wuhan to commercialize new technologies. President of the Chinese Academy of Sciences Bai Chunli pledging to develop advanced technologies especially for key materials dependent on U.S. imports and Vice-Premier Liu Ho similarly encouraging the city of Mianyang, which contains a large research complex to intensify its work on core technologies and enhance its capacity for independent innovation. With the entire nation throwing its weight behind technological development, prospects for domestic demand are bright. Growing confidence. In a sense, Dual circulation theory suggests China is increasingly confident of its domestic economy, which has been closing the gap with the U.S. China retail sales, by dollar value, was 91% of U.S. retail sales in 2018, up from 36% in 2008 and 14% in 2000. Even in a year like 2020, retail sales continue to be resilient in October 2020, retail sales are up 4.3% compared to a year ago. Year-to-date, retail sales are down just 5.9%, with e-commerce physical goods retail sales notably up 16%. As early as May 2020, with many parts of the world still under lockdown or barely beginning to re-emerge from them, China's average property sales volumes in its top 30 cities had already recovered to their 2019 levels. After a slump in 2018 and 2019, China's auto sales volumes in Q3 2020 had recovered to that in Q3 2018, with automakers and customers more optimistic. Meanwhile, export volumes have been unaffected by the pandemic, with a surge in alternative fuel vehicles and electric vehicles. Some 25 years ago, China's economy might have been driven more by its external demand horse. Today, the roles are reversed. Political stability is creating a benign environment for domestic growth. A long-running survey conducted by the Harvard Kennedy School shows how Chinese citizens have become more satisfied with their own government across all four levels of township, county, provincial, and central. China's political system has become more responsive to its citizens. While only 28% of those surveyed in 2003 felt local government officials were, quote, concerned with the difficulties of ordinary people, the proportion had risen to 52% by 2016, four years after President Xi took power in end-2012. Urbanization, New Infrastructure Boost Though China's domestic economy horse exudes confidence, It needs to be equipped with the right horseshoes to ensure it can gallop on for longer. A key strategy is hukou reform and urbanization. China has over 200 million migrant workers in its key cities. Giving more workers hukou to stay in the cities can drive China's urbanization rate up from 60% in 2020 to 75% by 2035. Increasing the urbanization rates by one percentage point each year already means an additional 12 to 15 million people in China's cities every year. Every two years, a population the size of Australia is added to China's cities. Every four years, a United Kingdom is added. However, Tier 1 cities are too crowded and expensive. To ensure the sustainable development of China's urban areas, one solution is to give the workers permanent residency, hukou, in China's medium-sized tier 2 and 3 cities with populations of 4 to 5 million each. Most central and inland provinces like Hunan, Henan, Sichuan, Hubei, and Anhui are only 52% urbanized, leaving substantial scope for increase in the next 10 to 15 years. These provinces presently have about 850 million people. Urbanization will occur around five major clusters, Yangtze River Delta, Pearl River Delta, Bohai Rim, Chengdu, Chongqing, and the Midlands. These five regions accounted for half of China's economy in 2018 and is expected to account for two-thirds by 2030. The strategy of clustering will also reduce pollution and transport costs while making housing in the big cities more affordable. As a result, millions more migrant workers might become residents of China's lower-tier cities every year. As they get married and settle down, they can put their higher savings rates to good use. Rising urbanization will continue to boost demand for goods like household appliances, furniture, cars, healthcare, and education. In turn, there will be more demand for infrastructure like roads, highways, metro lines, and houses. China has substantial room to increase its capital investment. Its real capital stock, per capita, is still relatively low compared to more developed economies, even after its massive infrastructure expansion in the last 30 years. Other than traditional hard infrastructure like roads and highways, China is also investing in, quote, new infrastructure, which supports technological growth. This refers to data centers, 5G base stations, and infrastructure for electric vehicles and artificial intelligence. Goldman Sachs forecasts that China will invest CNY $9 trillion in these, quote, new infrastructure projects from 2020 to 2025, in addition to traditional rail and power-related projects worth CNY $6 trillion. New infrastructure projects can reduce China's excess capacity and enable it to grow in a more efficient, sustainable way. These projects are expected to feature prominently in China's upcoming five-year plan and will also drive China's next leg of growth. External demand, hobbled but not out. While the domestic demand horse is powering ahead, the external demand horse is struggling. In 2018, the U.S. launched a trade war aimed at getting U.S. companies to move their supply chains away from China and back to the U.S. The trade war has since expanded to other fronts, such as sanctions aiming to restrict Chinese access to semiconductor technology. Since the trade war, China's share of U.S. imports has fallen a few percentage points, with competitors in lower-income Asian countries, as well as in Europe and Canada, gaining market share, according to research firm GavCall Dragonomics. The trade war came at a time when China's global economic influence has stagnated. China's share of world manufacturing exports and world merchandise exports peaked shortly after 2015 at 19% and 14% respectively. These shares have since fallen a few percentage points, Gavkol noted. However, empirical evidence suggests it is unlikely that the U.S. will decouple as much from China now as it did from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The two economies are far more intertwined. China forms a 13% share of total U.S. imports and exports. By contrast, the Soviet Union never managed to make up more than 1% of U.S. imports and exports throughout the Cold War. US and Chinese firms now have major investments in each other's markets. US corporate assets in China total more than USD 400 billion as of 2016, while Chinese firms hold about USD 250 billion in the US. Trade is only part of the relationship. General Motors joint ventures SAIC General Motors Sales and SAIC GM Wuling Automobile sold a combined 2 million vehicles in the first 9 months of the year, more than the 1.8 million vehicles it sold in the U.S. in the same time period. Similarly, China is still one of the largest markets for chip companies like Qualcomm, Intel, and Texas Instruments. It is also a growing market for semiconductor equipment makers like Applied Materials. These firms will be understandably reluctant to decouple, with their share prices moving in tandem with trade war ructions. Thus, China and the U.S. might not so much be rivals but Siamese twins. It will be a complicated operation to untangle one from the other. Meanwhile, U.S. foreign direct investment into China has been steady ever since the trade war began in 2018, suggesting that businesses are not decoupling much on the ground. A survey by the U.S.-China Business Council on its more than 100 member companies in May and June 2020 found that most say that U.S.-China trade tensions have impacted their businesses, mainly through lost sales due to tariffs or uncertainties over supply. Nevertheless, 83% say that China remains a top priority or among the top five priorities in their company strategy. Some 91% say their China operations are profitable, and 87% say they are not planning to move out. Significantly, despite trade and tech war tensions, U.S. foreign direct investments in China increased in 2019. China is also cultivating its own lobby in Washington and Wall Street to balance out the views of the hawks. To remain attractive to foreign investment, China has rapidly removed foreign ownership limits on its financial industries. It has found external champions for investment like JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon, who has spoken of his ambition to have a building with 7,000 employees in China, and Bridgewater Associates' Ray Dalio, who expects the Chinese Yuan to benefit from capital inflows. While China's external demand horse is tiring, it is unlikely to come to a complete halt. Vested interests between the two countries run deep. Betting on the right horse China has been trying to rebalance its economy for years. Its investment-driven economy has led to plenty of misallocated capital and resulted in high leverage for state-owned and corporate players. This time, COVID-19 and the trade war has given the country a powerful nudge towards a consumption-driven economy. China's consumers are coming into their own. In an extraordinary year like 2020, China would not have been able to grow nearly 5% in Q3 2020 without a strong domestic engine. Ultimately, powered by a rising middle class, political stability, infrastructure investment, and urbanization-related reforms, China can continue to grow at a moderate pace for many years. Investors should bet on the domestic demand horse, which can pull China ahead of other countries. With the macroeconomic outlook robust, the risks of investing in China can continue to decline. Professor Tan Konyam is a founding member and deputy chairman, China, of APS Asset Management. He is also professor of economics at the Nanyang Technological University. He serves as a board member at the Changi Airport Group, 2015 to present. From 1985 to 1988, he was the chief assistant to Dr. Gokeng Sui, the late deputy prime minister of Singapore, who was invited by Mr. Deng Xiaoping to advise China on economic development strategy. From June 2002 to June 2005, he was a senior economist at the World Bank office in Beijing. In 2004, he was a member of the World Bank Expert Group on the 11th five-year plan from 2006 to 2010 for the State Council in China. He served as the Chief Economist of the Singapore government from 1999 to 2002. Hao Xiong joined APS Asset Management in February 2020 as Vice President Investments. He previously worked at Credit Suisse AG and Singapore Press Holdings. He graduated summa cum laude from Dartmouth College in 2009 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He is a CFA charter holder.